0: From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations.
1: Half the Jewish world have step-families and have divorce in their family, like we know the statistics, you know, it's normal, but it's not normalized.
0: I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. Today, I'll be speaking with Ariel Collis and Reb Ezra Weinberg. We'll be discussing their joint EVOLVE essay, The Case for Jewish Communal Support for Divorce. In short, they argued that Jewish communities in general haven't done a very good job of helping those going through divorce as, as well as their affected families. And by the way, if you're interested in what you hear today, If it's relevant to your life, you should know that Reb Ezra is teaching a six-part online course for Ritual Well, and that's called Crossing a Narrow Bridge, Reframing Jewish Divorce. Ritual Well online learning offers a chance to make real connections and form community. We'll have a link how to sign up in our show notes. You can also find out more at ritualwell.org. So... Before we get to our guest, I wanted to check in with my friend, my executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub. Jacob, as as we're recording in in early September, how how are you? How are you this week?
2: I'm really good, Brian. How are you doing?
0: I'm well, thanks. Yeah we we need to uh, we need to catch up. Good to see you through the magic of not Zoom, but ZenCaster is is how we're talking.
2: It's so different. <laughs>
0: It it is. Um, well, hopefully, it sounds better to folks at home. Um, audio files might might be able to tell a difference. Um, so, Jacob, we recorded this interview over the over the summer. Listeners might notice Rabbi or Reb Weinberg makes a direct reference to Tisha Abav. Um for various reasons. We're releasing this now, and and I think it makes sense to do so. Um, Ezra and and. Ariel, talk about the importance of including those going through divorce in meals and community events and as we're about to begin sukkot um, from what I from what I understand inviting guests is a major aspect of, of the holiday so Jacob I'm I'm wondering if you could help say a little more about the connection between guests and sukkot and how that might play into thematically, hopefully it does, to, to this conversation we're having today?
2: Sure. That's a great question. Um, so I have two thoughts. One, um, when I think of a sukkah, the uh, booth, it's a temporary dwelling place where you're out in the, you know, wilds of your backyard or whatever, and um, it's not so secure and it's not permanent. And so it it's meant to remind us that things aren't are not permanent, um, including in nowadays the majority of cases in the US, um marriages. Um and so connecting the Sukkah to the vulnerability of relationships, I think, is uh is something that's worth thinking about. Uh the second point you've already alluded to, but um the primary message of uh, Reb Ezra and Ariel is that the Jewish community should find more effective ways of supporting and including individuals and families affected by divorce. And the sukkah is associated with ushpizim, uh, which is just an Aramaic word for guests. We invite not only friends and family and acquaintances but uh, people who are not with us, who are no longer alive. Sometimes it's the patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a grandparent um, and uh, the sukkah stands for bringing people in. And so I, I really do think that this is um, completely appropriate to the uh, conversation we're about to have. Right. I guess
0: I never realized this. There's there's like a Day of the Dead element to Sukkot to Su Sukkot, where we invite like our ancestors, their their spirits in, or i guess I'm not, not familiar with this teaching.
2: Huh. I don't know that I would call it Day of the Dead. I don't know so much <laughs> about Day of the Dead.
0: But um
2: there's definitely not just a day a day of inviting people in, not just a week, but it's certainly a component of traditional Jewish life is to, Go to a grave before Rosh Hashanah um, to uh, invite in and communicate with your departed loved ones, and um, so it's not alien it's not <laughs> at all. Um, but that's kind of an aside to the question of divorce. Um,
0: sure, I know how much you like baseball. This is this is the fall, so I had to throw you a curveball
2: um yeah you still have a few weeks before playoffs
0: right 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 um i feel like every time i you you come on the show is i i put you on the spot in one way or another so so i'm gonna do it again although although i i did give you i did give you a heads up um so i don't know some is it two decades ago i mean you went through what you've written about and what you've you've said to me was was a pretty a pretty painful difficult divorce and I, I guess just coming with that experience I'm wondering if you could tell us what resonated for you in this in the essay that Ezra and Ariel wrote or or what they said in the interview and maybe even why you solicited the, the piece to begin with
2: well let me answer that last part first um, I was aware of the work that um, Ezra was beginning to do, I guess almost I became aware almost two years ago, and uh, thought yeah we, this is something that's i haven 't heard much about haven 't read much about that it need it needs surfacing, but speaking more personally, my primary memory of the years in the middle of and following the breakup of of our marriage was a feeling of disorientation hmm. um, had never actually, I was 50 years old, I'd never lived alone. So the first several nights of living in an apartment alone was were, um, were interesting. But in general, besides that, I was living in a new place. I was adjusting to new relationships with my kids. I um, was losing many of the people who had been friends of both of us who really couldn't um, didn't know how to handle the uh, taking sides issue, you know, and uh, and so they tried, but not so successfully. Everything was out of out of kilter, um, and what really helped me through was the steadfast and constant support of a number of close friends, some of whom actually called me every day, uh, many of whom had lunch or dinner with me once a week or once every other week um and they really were anchoring in this disoriented and unmoored new kind of kind of life and in my case i had really i really had an established and wonderful community at rrc at the reconstruction Biblical college but um when i was thinking about the message of reb ezra and Ariel, um, is that I would I would focus less on the particular program or technique of including people and more about what will work in a given case to make people feel befriended and supported and anchored and not alone, not out, not out all by themselves. And I do think that's that's uh, critical. I think there's a lot of stuff that synagogue communities and other communities can really do to help that out. And I think their point about how we know how to deal with um, mourners and Shiva and all that, and we don't talk about, don't, don't really focus um, on divorce as a, an unmooring and unsettling and difficult time is completely correct I and mean, it really deserves our attention.
0: Thanks, thanks, Jacob. thanks for for opening up in, in this way and and really helping to frame and, and, and set the table for this important um, important conversation, um, which which I think will will raise a lot of the the issues that, that you just raised. So, so thank you.
2: No problem.
0: Now, before we start the interview, a reminder. All of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And Evolve is, is of course, part of a network, uh, a small network of websites um, operated, overseen by the organization Reconstructing Judaism. Um, you might also want to check out reconstructingjudaism.org, which. It you know really explains what Reconstructionist Judaism it is and and shares a lot of resources and and ways to learn and connect and of course there's ritualwell.org and and by the way while we're while we're at it if you have uh, any interest at all at, in a, in a career in the rabbinate um, check out rrc.edu you can learn a lot you need to know about what uh what studying for the rabbinate might look look like. And now it's time for our guests. The first is Ariel Kalis, who is an economic consultant. And when he's not advising law firms on economic issues, he discusses Jewish rituals and contexts, um, especially with regards to those going through divorce with his friend, Reb Ezra Weinberg. He has been a member of modern Orthodox conservative and Reconstructionist congregations, um, if we had a reform, we might, we'd might we be going for the cycle there. He, um, he lives in Baltimore with his three children. Reb Ezra Weinberg is a Philadelphia-based rabbi and practitioner of conflict transformation. He is the founder of Revoice, a journey of discovery for Jewish families after divorce. Among his various projects, he officiates weddings and b'nai mitzvah, teaches courses on connecting to Jewish prayer, and helps communities get unstuck around the topic of Israel. When he graduated from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2009, he became part of the first ever mother-son duo to be ordained as rabbis. His mother, Rabbi Sheila Weinberg, graduated RRC in 1986. Ariel Collis, Reb Ezra Weinberg, welcome both to the Evolve podcast. It's, it's wonderful to have you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for bringing us on.
0: Of course, of course. Um, when I first heard from Rabbi Jacob Staub that there was going to be an evolve essay on on divorce and Jewish communal support for divorce, I, I sort of wondered at first, like, isn't this wasn't this a cutting edge issue in the 1970s? Hasn't it become? Normalized in society, it, it it sounded off the face of it less less cutting edge than some of the things we normally talk about. And and your your essay tell that you wrote together tells a really compelling different story. And and I I thought a place to start to illustrate is is Ariel. I was wondering if you could if you could share the 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 episode of what what happened when you approached your, your congregational rabbi in the, you know, as you were in the stages of going through a separation or divorce?
3: Sure. So Ezra and I had been for a long time, uh, had been talking about divorce ever since sort of my separation um, from my ex-wife. And one of the things that he was, that he mentioned was that why don't you go to the rabbi? Why don't you seek counsel? See mm. what see what he, he has to say about this. So I went to the rabbi. It was almost a homework assignment that I was given. And I went to the rabbi and I said to him, you know, you know I'm going through a very confusing, very difficult time. Is there anything, is there any advice that you can give me? And he basically said, well, uh, Judaism has something to say about the get, but that's about it. There's really no other, there's no other advice I can give you. Um,
0: and what's it what's get again? Sorry.
3: Excuse me. And that's a Jewish divorce document, Jewish document of divorce. And I was like, okay, well, is there anything, anything more? And he gave me, a, he gave me some advice about joining communal organizations and things like that, but nothing really specific to my situation. And I found that very alienating. And sort of I felt like there must be something more. And that was one of the reasons that I started talking to Ezra about sort of publishing these ideas that he had about being more about bringing in Judaism to help people through the process of divorce and using Jewish customs and things that really work to, to get help people get through
0: this. Wow. Um, I didn't realize it was a collaborative Effort almost almost a test case. I mean, Ezra, we you know when you heard this, were were you was that the response you were you were expecting? Did it confirm, um, you know, sort of a hypothesis? Had you had similar experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, Ariel and I, you know, we we were friends as kids. Um, I lived in Philadelphia until I was fourteen, and our our fr- friendship, um, you know, re- reignited after a long lapse. Um, around our divorce. And I, I had a hunch that rabbis typically have a deer in headlights response to divorce. Like, that's just one of the things I'm a rabbi, I, I was not given any real training around how to um, console and um, connect and help re reconf- help, help a family reconfigure itself. And I, I went through this as a child, both Ariel and I went through this as children. Um, and uh so I when when Ariel and I met, we, we decided I, I we became divorce chavruta, I like to call just people that we would we would talk to each other once a month and kind of check in about this dual experience. And uh yeah, I I had a hunch that the rabbis were not gonna be able to show up um for Ariel as 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 uh, you know, it just to, to, it's not in the playbook. Um, it's not in the rabbinic playbook in any movement, really. Unless you have that direct experience yourself, uh, it's very hard to, to, to know what to say. There's nothing in Judaism uh, to say to someone when you hear they get, they're getting divorced. Uh, some, people, some people say that you should say mazel tov, um, uh, but most people just say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And that's a really complicated thing to say to somebody. Um, when you don't really know what's going on, um, it's, it's, it comes off as like a consolation. Like there was a death and there are death aspects of it, but to say, you're sorry, like maybe you're just sorry that they got divorced and maybe that's not an appropriate thing to say.
0: So what, I mean, um, what is, what is, is it, what is an appropriate thing to say when you encounter someone who's been, been divorced right after it? Or does it totally depend on 15 different contexts that you may not be aware of?
1: Um, no, it's such a good question. Uh, I think what's not an okay thing to say is not intuitive, but don't assume what people are feeling. Hmm. So um, if you say mazel tov or I'm sorry, you're indicating, oh, they must be in a really d- bad state or, oh, they must be really relieved. And both those things are probably true at di- different times, um, but I think you want to give a values neutral statement indicating care. Um, so the thing that, the thing that was most helpful to me that someone said to me once was, wow, that's a big deal. That's, that's huge. Um, and they also said, what would be a helpful response in this moment? Hmm. And I thought that was a great question. What would be a helpful result? They let, let me kind of determine the uh, emotional reality that I needed in that moment. Um,
0: so so and, acknowledging the power without necessarily assigning a positive or negative value judgment to it is what, what could be helpful. Emotion.
1: Yeah. Um, a uh, rabbi friend of mine from the Reconstructionist Movement, Rabbi Jamie Arnold in uh, Colorado, um and I came up with something else to say, uh, which we like to, we think it'd be helpful. One, you know, one possible response could be what we say when we finish a, a book of the Torah. Uh, I, think, I, did, I think two weeks ago, when we finished the book of, uh, of Numbers, um, there's a phrase that says, chazak, chazak, venit chazek, which means may you go from strength and be strengthened. Um, and we all shall be strengthened. And uh, but what it indicates is it's the end of the ch- when you when you say that you finish a chapter of the Torah and you go to the next chapter and it's such a good metaphor you're ending one chapter of your life and you're going to another chapter and you're praying for strength like who doesn't need that wow.
0: and it seems it seems really fortunate that that and, and and maybe essential that that you two had each other as as Havruta. As 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 we're going through this, and I think what you didn't say is that you actually met met as children when when your your parents were going were going through divorce, um, which um, which is which is really striking. But yet, I mean, I, I think each of you wanted something more from 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 community. I mean, you wrote that Judaism is meant to be a full service religion with uh, wisdom community built in especially during the most defining moment uh, of our lives. So I, I guess can, can Ariel, maybe you could start. What, can you talk about what you were, you were looking for, that you, that you didn't find, that you, you felt like you had to, you know, you couldn't go to your community for? Sure.
3: Um, I think I was looking for, I mean, I don't know that I knew that I was looking for this at the time, mm-hmm. but over time, this is what it's evolved into what I've seen that I was looking for. Um, I was looking for three things. One, somebody to say, you're not alone. I've experienced the same things that you have. And while my friends who hadn't gone through it could offer offer sympathy, they couldn't offer empathy. And that was one of the things Mm. that I was looking for. And then also that somebody cared. That was the other thing. That I was not alone, um, but then there was also caring behind it. Because I think unless you've gone through it, it's harder to, to both give the empathy and the caring and also to show and to understand really that you're not alone. Because I think for some people who who haven't experienced it, it, it does feel like an other experience and not something that they relate to directly. And I think that's sometimes some of the comments that people give, give that impression, the expression of sort of like you're an other rather Mm -hmm. than you're one of us.
1: Yeah. Can I add? Please. Absolutely. The, one of the things that Ariel wrote and brought to that article that like really struck me and I've, talked about this in multiple settings is the, the, I think the rabbi said, we don't take sides. Um, and uh, th- that was such a, a fear based m- moment, I think from the rabbi and, and 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 I think actually governs a lot of people's response to divorce. They're so afraid of taking sides or appear as though they're taking sides that, that it paralyzes them from doing anything it's as if the the excuse we don't take sides um, uh, prevents any possible ways of connecting, comforting, bringing resources and support, and it's 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 um, uh, it's, it's it's really unfortunate that that fear has um, kind of uh, really governed the course of action around it, and has not I mean, we have not many people have not been able to move beyond the fear of taking sides. There's a lot you can do and you can even, you could cultivate a language of how not to take sides. Um uh, And you know, that's, that's one of the things we've talked about is how to, um, how to move forward in the conversation, even if like sides, you know, if blame comes up, how to like, how to not go down that path and still, you know, cause, it's divorce is messy. We can't get around that. But there, is, you, I, I, believe we're we're sophisticated enough uh, uh, people that we can still offer support and other resources um, that don't hinge on our ability to, you know, be partial. Does that makes sense. Yeah. And
3: if I could add, um, I think that one of the things that we're trying to talk about. Is that maybe the first thing is the support? Maybe the first offer is support, rather than the I don't take sides, because that's really what you need to hear at that moment. You know that I support you, and supporting doesn't necessarily have to be uh, taking sides in one way or another in divorce. Like I'm here for you. Can I? What can I do? What can I? How can I help? Sort of thing.
0: What would you say to to folks? who view divorce as a failure or either from the outside or the inside or isn't even something something shameful?
3: Uh, well, I guess first, in a sense, it doesn't matter <laughs> because even if you view it as a failure or some, or a tragedy or something awful, you still need somebody to support you. And that's something that the community can do. If you normalize the experience, if you make it public, if you make it regular, then it, even if it is felt as a as a tragedy or as a failure, it can be very useful in helping the person get through the situation. Um, I know that Ezra might have a slightly different take on the issue. Yeah,
1: I mean that's a good question, and I think it's actually very. Uh, um the feeling of failure is very insidious um, because we give so much weight to the success of marriage. Marriage is like for many people, the most Mm. important thing they do in their entire life. And so, so to, to not succeed and to feel like it fails, like breaks a lot of uh, notions of who, who someone is and who they thought they were and, 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 and the life they were leading. Um, But I think, most of us in society value a failed experience. Um, we place you know, um, you hear from the world of sports, you know, that, that, uh, that most athletes, like they learn from their failures and like, you know, we just don't like failure, you know, anyone who's successful talks about their failures. So we just don't like to, apl- we just, many of us don't like to apply that thinking to relationships because the stakes are so high. But I don't know, I, 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 I think it is a block for a lot of people. Uh, we, I was having this discussion, um, it was a real debate, like, is, is divorce the same thing as a failed marriage? And can you differentiate between a relationship that didn't last versus you yourself being the failure? Um, and I think they, those two get often intertwined. Why my, my my marriage didn't last? I must be the failure. Um, and there's a there's that feeling and pervasive. But like we have to think, you know, the support we would get in synagogue would help us push those two apart. The marriage was one thing, and the who we are continues and thrives and can thrive.
0: Has evolve nourished your thinking, deepened your conversations? Consider supporting our work and learning with our groundbreaking teachers. The next Evolve Web Conversation is Monday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I know that's pretty soon. Sorry for the short notice. But it's with Rabbi Lex Rothberg. You may know Lex as the co-host of the very popular and influential podcast, Judaism Unbound. Lex has written for Evolve and also serves as an Evolve board member and he helped, he helped us uh, with, with some really helpful advice when we started this podcast. The title of his talk is Pillars of the Cloud, The Liberatory Potential of Digital Judaism, and supporters who contribute $250 or more can join this conversation live. That's Monday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find a link to sign up on our show notes or more information on evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And if you haven't checked out Judaism Unbound, why not start with episode 326, which came out just a couple weeks ago. Lex and his co-host Dan Liebenson interview Marcus Holly, a rabbinical student at RRC, who is an operatically trained theater artist and ritual leader. We'll also have a link to that show in the notes. Okay, back to the conversation with Ariel and Ezra. One of the practical suggestions you 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 offer in 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 the essay is 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 um you know, what if communities offered meal trains for people going through divorce? And I, I wanted to ask why that's why that's important and also because it does evoke illness and and death, I feel like that's usually, or maybe birth with, you know, but so I I guess how do we, how do we think about that in in the context of what we usually associate meal trains with?
3: Sure. Um, I guess there's two things. One, in the experience that I grew up with, uh, food was a way of showing affection and to have the Mm -hmm. community come out and give you food and sort of take care of you. At a time of great need is a wonderful thing, and it's very comforting, and it can be a huge help. But one of the things that I was told was by my mother um, when she went through her divorce process that was one that helped her was the community coming out and inviting her to meals, also not just giving, but inviting her out providing a social context providing a community and these were people from her synagogue and that sort of gave her life regularity um good food a friend group people to choose from from a friend group and it was really of vital importance to her and i and i think that's that's a wonderful thing but at its most basic level just helping out and taking care of the most basic needs of somebody. You see that with funerals, you see that you do see that with, um, births, um, death, that it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it shows, it, it shows people are loved and supported and that's, and that can help somebody through a very, very tough time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just figuring out ways to show up for people. There's this, there's this weird sense with divorce, unlike the other life cycle events, that it's a private thing and that we should be uh, hidden from view. And there's an isolation that happens from that. Um, You know, people don't, people don't want to meddle in with the divorce. They're afraid of what, you know, of the ugliness that it might ensue, but supporting someone is not inherently ugly. So, you know, and it's also like when it comes to support around Shiva, you know, like it's halachically Jewish law forbids, you to be by yourself, be alone for your morning period, you have to have a minion, you have to be around people, mm-hmm. you can't go through this yourself. But in divorce, you can totally go through it by yourself. Um, and there's no mechanism to, to, to prevent that from happening. Um, so I think what Ariel we're talking about is like, different ways of showing up for people um, to, 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 to remember so they don't get isolated. Because I think there when we go through something difficult, there is for many of us an instinct to like hide. I don't want people to, hmm. to see what I'm going through. But the, 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 one of the purposes of community is to show up uh, in difficult moments so that we, you know, we traverse that instinct and like, you know, and give, give us what we actually need rather than what our alarmist kind of fear-based scared brain is going through, which is like, oh, I don't want anyone to know what's going on with me. You know, that's that, that that's an instinct. We need to kind of, the Jewish community helps us push through that, uh, and it should in this life cycle event as well.
0: So I've got I've got lots more questions, but I, I think it's a good time to point out that um, Ezra, you you started a project um, with the goal of uh, of changing attitudes and, and behaviors around this uh, with a project uh, a new project called Revoice. So, um, uh, can you tell us what it is and what you're what you're doing, what you hope to do?
1: Sure. Um thank you. This this the the idea for Revoice which is basically a, a network of resources for Jews going through divorce. Um it came out of uh this bizarre realization that the resources that didn't exist for my parents when they were going through divorce continue to not exist for me today. Um and I realized that when I began thinking about my first child bar mitzvah, uh, coming up, um, and realizing that, you know, I'm in the middle of a divorce myself and there's no playbook to help us and help any rabbi we're working with kind of figure out how to negotiate, how to have a conversation, how to bring back families, a family that was basically, you know, uh, a united family that was, di- that was divided. How do you do that for a day? Um, Uh, and you know, my, my own personal situation as a kid, I had two bar mitzvahs. Um, I my parents, they did not have, there was no support. Then there was no organization that give advice. There were no mediators. There was, there wasn't even the the language around it and they couldn't figure out how to get along enough to figure out one bar mitzvah. So I had two bar mitzvahs on consecutive weeks.
0: For Um, different sides of the family.
1: Yeah, it was very weird. Um, it was very last minute, it's a whole story, but I, but then I, as I'm, you know, 35 years later, I'm going through this myself and the situation hasn't changed. I feel like we need to construct an approach to divorce in the Jewish world. that just doesn't exist. And so revoice is the beginning of that. And so one of the projects I developed a course called the Torah of divorce, which I've taught at a few different synagogues in Philadelphia. Um, just to help people think about it, and every time I teach this class, people come up to me and they're like, "Wow, Judaism has something to say about divorce." Yes, Judaism has a lot to say about divorce. Um, in fact, uh, I said I would mention Tisha B'Av, which is um, today the 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 the, the uh, fast day that commemorates the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem. Um, for those who are studying the Talmud. Um, in the cycle of the Talmud, it's called Daf Yomi. It's a page of Talmud every day. This month, this we're in we're in this we're in, we're exactly at the moment uh, in the Talmud where we're studying the the the, the tractate on divorce. It's called Masechet Gitin. And uh, I, literally a couple of weeks ago, there was a whole chapter of Gitin. Took a break from all the divorce laws and all of the Information about what you do to de- deliver a divorce, and it had a whole chapter on on the destruction of the temple, um, which I found really interesting and surprising, and uh, mm. and I was like, "Wow, how does the what does the destruction of the temple have to do with divorce?" So I felt it very appropriate that we should be meeting today and having a podcast about divorce on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple because it's right there in the Talmud and that's my point is that Judaism has all kinds of conversations about divorce historically um we have laws about it we have part of a tractate of the Talmud it's in the Torah divorce and marriage are in the Torah not as the not as we know them now but um uh so it's so so the fact that that what Ariel said earlier, that there could be a conception that Judaism, from a rabbi, that Judaism doesn't talk about divorce. It's not true. We have a whole history of divorce and so Revoice is about bringing the tradition back and helping us navigate a pathway forward to support people through this process.
0: And is, I mean, is there, have you thought about it? Is there, is there, a, is there a metaphor there between divorce and the destruction of the temple? Does it raise more Questions than answers for you. What where, where do you? What did you take away from that?
1: Um, absolutely. I mean it's it's not a, it's not a perfect metaphor because you could say that God divorces Israel. There's there's language around that in the tradition that God is divorcing Israel and we are left alone and God abandons us. Really, kind of using high conflict narrative, um, but it's it's hard to fully justify because we God reclaims us around Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> So like seven weeks of kind of like this weird period between today and Rosh Hashanah. It's exactly seven weeks, actually. Um, and uh, but 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 some of the imagery is really stark to like a high conflict divorce. Um, in in the book of Lamentations, which was re- which is typically read traditionally on Tisha B'Av.
0: Ariel, you, you are not a rabbi. You are not a Jewish communal professional, but you're a very engaged jew who who you know who grew up sort of embraced by the jewish community found a lot of meaning there what what are you hoping to accomplish beyond you know beyond finding more comfort for yourself it seems like you also have changes you'd like to see in the in the broader world
3: well the reason i wanted to write this article was that Ezra and i really he reached out to me after my separation and we, like he said, we had a divorce talking group and we really hashed out the issues in our divorce. And throughout that time, he just started talking about these, these ideas that he had about making it more public, giving, you know, giving people support using Jewish traditions. And, you know, I would kind of push him with that. And I would say, okay, well, when you say support, do you mean like, Like with the Shiva, like with, like, what do we, what do you mean? And we'd go back and forth and we'd hash this out. And eventually I was like, these are really good ideas. And I started sharing them with everybody that I knew. And what I wanted to do with this article was just get it out to more people. I think it's important ideas. I think it, it, it helped me. It, I think it could help a lot of other people. And certainly if a rabbi had a playbook that, could could help them uh, to have words to say to, me, to say to somebody who goes to them and says, what should I do about my divorce? Uh, you know, I've just got divorced. Can do you have any advice? And they have something. They have Jewish tradition. They have, they have things that they could institute within the congregation to help make the transition back to going to shul easier, to make the transition back to life easier, depending on the time, you know, the time within the process to you know when 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 things start settling down integrate me back into the congregation more fully when i when i want to get out there if if a rabbi could have that if the congregation could have those steps that would be hugely helpful for me and then i thought this would be helpful for a lot of other people and that's what i wanted to share i wanted to st- and also i wanted to prompt Ezra to to start writing the playbook hmm. that he's talking about
0: i will I will share before before this interview I had a conversation with um Rabbi Linda holtzman, who is a a, a, a longstanding teacher at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College sure. and teaches a lot of what we call practical rabbinics, how to be a rabbi and I asked about divorce in the in the curriculum and and she said when she was a student, I, I believe, in 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 the late seventies, you know, they learned they learned the laws of of divorce, and you know, and that was that was it, you know, that was that was all there was. And 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 she said in in two thousand twenty three, and I know I know Ezra, you've you've graduated more, you know, a few years ago at this point that that things are things are a lot different that that they do talk a lot about um the how how the rabbi can off be serving a pastoral role in in this case and really look for you know to be attuned to what the person going through a divorce in this life cycle might be feeling and try to figure out ways that the rabbi and i guess by extension the community might be of service so i'm wondering if that's you know if that's encouraging if there's if there are things you you know you think could or should be added to the curriculum.
1: Yeah. I learned with Rabbi Linda at RRC. Um uh, was in her life cycles class. And I think one of the assignments was to, you know, was to reenvision a divorce ritual, you know, maybe a, a more meaningful um uh experience with you know in a separation. Um uh so I know R- I know RRC has a creative approach to ritual um, and life cycle events, which is, which is valuable. Um, but that's, you know, that's one piece of a large puzzle. And divorce mm-hmm. is a, you know, it's, it's a paradigm changer for someone's life. Um, you know, you know when there's kids, it changes their lives too dramatically. Um, and, uh, you know, it changes your relationship to, can change your relationship to God, to religion, to to community, to your family, to all future life cycle events. It's, there's such a a domino effect that divorce has on someone's life, um, and I don't. I'd like to. I'd like the curriculum to kind of, I don't know, hold the gravitas of this moment. Uh, yeah. No. So one. So one thing I'm offering in, in Revoice as um, we're developing a curriculum for rabbis to train them as divorce first responders, because a lot of rabbis are in that role anyway, but they don't have the training. Um, so, and, and, I, and maybe rabbinical schools, I, eventually I would like to get this into rabbinical school. I'd like rabbis to, to have like, to understand what's going on in a divorce, um, to know where they can be helpful and where they're in over their heads. Maybe if it's too high conflict, like it's out of their purview, um, but just having the language, like most, most people don't even know that, that high conflict is a term for, mm-hmm. a, for, a, for a high conflict divorce. There's just amicable and everything else. Um, and so developing a little bit of language, but this training is, is aimed at helping clergy of all, you know, of the different kinds of clergy we have in the Jewish community, help them um, respond Uh, confidently and
3: effectively to, you know,
1: to divorce situations.
3: And if I could add, uh, so I live in Baltimore and there's a, a large modern Orthodox community and I have lots of friends in the modern Orthodox community. And some of my friends read our article and they thought, wow, this is, this is good. And this is relevant. It's not, I don't think this is sort of out of the ordinary and it's not a, it's not a like, it's something that's sort of doesn't need to be off the beaten path for Judaism. Like there's a lot of room within Judaism to integrate this and not just in the Reconstructionist movement. I think that certainly, you know, modern Orthodox where the synagogue that I went to is modern Orthodox. The rabbis that I went to was moder- were modern Orthodox. Um, so they certainly wouldn't have studied at RRC. And I think that there's a lot of things that would be good and relevant that don't take people to too weird of a path that would be, that would be good to integrate into just regular synagogue life, like starting rituals that could go across the Jewish sex.
1: Let me give two examples. Um, I just had my first, um, I'm calling a Jewish, um, a Jewish men's divorce circle. And it's just a, it's a virtual men's group um, for divorced men who are, you know, different places in their divorce, but just to come together to talk. And, and we just had our first meeting a couple of days ago and uh, two ideas came up from this meeting. Um, it, it wasn't even a brainstorm, but I just like, when, when we get together, people who are going through similar challenges, like create, you know, ideas come up. One said, I wish I could say Kaddish for my marriage. You know, I wish I could, but I, but the problem is I don't know when to start, you know, because divorce isn't, uh, like it isn't an event usually it's a, it's a protracted moment that kind of keeps as layers to it. So, but that was, I loved hearing that. I wish I could say Kaddish for my divorce, for my marriage. Um, the other idea was like basic mentorship, like someone who's been divorced a long time being coupled up with someone who's newly divorced um but that, that that's the, this isn't you know we do this you know the the alcoholic movement does this they call it this, they call it sponsorship you get someone who's been in recovery for a long time as a sponsor to a new person this these not you know it's not a, it's not a brilliant idea but it's like basic support systems from other places that could be useful let
0: me let me ask this since you mentioned a jewish you mentioned jewish uh men support groups do, do you think jewish men you know might experience um divorce differently or have unique needs in a uh in in a jewish community
1: i i don't like to make too many broad sweeping generalizations um but my my sense is that uh um it's more common for men to kind of isolate themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, the divorce support that does exist typically is about around abuse, and that's going to be much more centered around women. Um, and I apologize if I sound overly heteronormative about this. Um, but uh,
0: I guess it was a heteronormative question. So so you could blame me if I set you up there. Okay.
1: Um, but yeah, I, 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 but but when, like, when it comes to abuse, that's, you know, much more, um, typically around, uh, women and the, the Aguna issue in the Orthodox world, women who, whose whose husbands refuse to grant them a divorce, a get, um, that's much more, uh, that's halakhically according to Jewish law, uh, much more of a problem for for women whose whose, whose ex husbands won't grant them the status of divorce so they can move on. Um, but so yeah, I I, I typically I, I've noticed that there haven't been a lot of support services around divorce targeted towards men. So this is why I wanted to experiment at least with a, a men's group.
0: If you're enjoying this episode please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple podcast. These ratings really help people find out about the show. And by the way, I'm excited about this. We are so close to 100,000 episodes downloaded. You're listening. You're really listening. Just 2000 ago. I can't believe it. Thank you for listening and help us cross this threshold. It's going to happen really soon. All right, now back to our conversation. Ariel, one suggestion that got into the article, which which I found really striking, was this idea or, or a question even of what would it look like if congregations started putting announcements about divorce in their in their bulletins, if they're if they're still mailing printed bulletins or in their weekly emails. Um, um I, I wasn't sure if you were if that was a you know if that was a thought experiment, if you were advocating for this as as something congregations should do, but but I wanted to hear more about it.
3: One of the things that really fascinated me when we started talking about this was the similarities and the path that can be shown through Jewish customs. Having to do with death, so one of the things that a stark contrast between divorce and uh, and how we handle death is death, though very painful, I mean one of the most painful things in people's lives, and certainly people don't want to think about and they don't want to talk about death, but yet it becomes extremely public with congregations. They announce it from the bima they announce it in the newsletters. they have people you know after they um after they do, rich after they do rituals around mourning, they come and they give talks about about their life, and they they give contributions to the synagogue, and they have they have um, meals dedicated to them in the synagogue. So all of this I saw, and I saw that this was incredibly helpful for people. So one of the things that Ezra had suggested was, "Oh, well, what if you could do the same things with divorce? So you could announce it from the bema." Um, but one of the, one of his key provisos was, you know, if somebody, if, if somebody wants it, you know, if that it would be a question that was asked in advance, but one, it would take care of a big problem, which is you have to go around to everybody individually and tell them that you're divorced. And I think that's similar with death that, you'd have to go without these announcements, you'd have the person, it would be an onus on the person to go around to everybody individually Mm. and say, listen, this relative died. I'm very sad, which you're in no condition to do when you're in a position of mourning. And I think similar with divorce, you know, I didn't want to go up to everybody and say, hey, I'm splitting for my wife or, hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of a divorce right now. But if you announce it from the BEMA, that would take that burden away from people, and it would also make it public, and it would also make it uh, less of, there'd be less stigma around it, because the rabbi's saying it, everybody heard it, there's no, it's not private, it's not shameful, it's something that's just out there, so again, I don't know that everybody would want to do that. But I think if a few people heard it and they saw the reaction from a congregation, a largely sympathetic reaction, I think that would go a long way to alleviating some of the shame and some of the isolation uh, that comes along with that announcement. And I think that would that could possibly be a good thing.
1: Yeah, I try to envision this what this would look like because um, I, yeah, I haven't I haven't fully landed on how this could be executed and how it could. How it ultimately work, um, and like Ariel says, it's not for everybody. But a few examples could really, could really start something. Um, uh, uh, I, I go to the South Philly Stiebel, uh, the synagogue mm. that I attend, and um, at the end of synagogue, I'm just envisioning, you know, they do announcements and they do like, you know, this kiddish has been sponsored by the list of people so-and-so on your wedding. Everybody says Mazel Tov so-and-so on the memory of your, of your parents yard site. And, you know, they'll say they can go, they can easily switch from the Mazel Tov energy to the condolence energy. And then, so what if they said, and I want to also announce that uh, we have a separation in our community this week. Um, and we just want to offer you may you have strength in this transitional moment. Um, you know, I know another synagogue in Philadelphia, BCBI, where someone has had a divorce-aversary kiddish, but the synagogue didn't want them to uh, announce that. So they have had to kind of couch it because they were like, didn't want to, they didn't want to um, broadcast divorce. There was like this weird shame around it. I appreciate the pioneering work of this person trying to do that, but it's clearly like difficult for a community to imagine how to, how to. Bring in these this 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 life cycle in a public way, but I, I think it's important to envision how we could be more public because being private hasn't served uh, being overly private as a as a as a gut instinct um, hasn't reduced the amount of shame um, that it goes and sense of failure that goes along with this. So I, I do want to encourage out of the box thinking around this
0: it's funny when i when i first read that i i s- interpreted it as sort of a almost like a declaration of a divorce positive statement this is this is a good thing that we're recognizing and and now after listening to you i'm 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 hearing it more as here is a here is a way to name and identify you know the enormity of the thing and all complicated emotions that go with it. So I don't know if either is 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 closer to the intent, but I'm 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 hearing it a different way today than when I than when I read it.
3: Yeah, I think that again, the principles around dealing with death I think are a good guide that this is a this is an enormous event that's that's life changing and it's a huge break from the past. And There's a tendency to isolate. There's a tendency to want to be by yourself, but at a time when you really need support and you really need a community to be there. And really the only way for the community to be there is to be told to be there. That's, I mean, you know, that's, that's you need to announce the Shiva minions in order for people to show up. And similarly, you need to, there needs to be something public in order for people to show up.
0: We haven't we haven't talked a lot about kids maybe maybe because that could be its own forget podcast its own course or something but um, I guess I'm wondering generally or, or or even in your own experience what are what are some of the biggest challenges to keeping children whose parents are going through a divorce or separation Um you know actively engaged in, in Jewish life or or just you know limiting the the general life disruption
1: I mean one of the key things that was done for us as children I mean we our, our are pa- our our mothers were introduced to each other specifically because they were two divorced women in an era where there wasn't a lot of divorce and so consequential that Ariel and I became like friends who were going through the same thing as children I think that that should be like obvious, obvious people who are going through divorce should be connected with other people who are going through it. So you don't feel alone. You know, that's, that's the key trope in this is that you don't feel alone. Um, uh, and so that work that's important for children as, as much as it, if not more than for the adults that you can have someone who, who really can identify with your experience, who knows what it's like to go between houses. Um, if that's the arrangement, um, who knows what it's like to, to have step families. I mean, it's funny that it's funny that I'm saying this back to your point, Brian, at the beginning, how this is like, we thought of this, we thought this is so normal, right? It is normal. Half the Jewish world have step families and have divorce in their family. Like we know the statistics, you know, it's normal, but it's not normalized for children either it's not normalized in the jewish community we haven't updated our um our synagogue structures and the way we talk about this like you know we haven't updated um i'll quote rabbi perry netter who wrote the book is a mitzvah um it's a great book on the subject I wrote it about 20 years ago and he said synagogues operate typically and not all of them but still the typical synagogue operates under the mama bear, papa bear, and baby bear uh, model of, of Jewish life. And that's not Jewish life anymore, but we haven't figured out a way to talk about it um, uh, publicly uh, to normalize it yet. Um, so that's, that's part of what Revoice is aiming to do, is to bring it into the discourse. Um, and I think that, that's, that, that's, that children need to see that too, that it's, that it's normal. Um, that's normalized. They feel like it's normal because they know a lot of people, but they it, it hasn't been seen as okay in terms of the the way we talk about Jewish life.
3: I mean, one of the things that we were talking about that did not make it into the article was the idea of a rabbinic checklist for divorced parents that after the separation and the divorce, the rabbi just has a checklist like, okay, have you thought about holidays? Have you thought about their bar mitzvah? Have you thought, here's some basic steps that you can take, you know, one, two, three. And then they just, things that you wouldn't think about, you know, you talk about splitting holidays or where would, you know, where would the kids be? How how would they get to the synagogue? Would um, And also, I think this did make it into the article that a list of intentions for the parents, not only where they are now, but where they will be in a little bit. Like in a little bit, would it be okay for both of you to go go to synagogue together on the high holidays? In a little bit, would it be okay to do Shabbat together every now and then, just as a broader family celebration? And I think if a rabbi had something, a checklist like that, then I think one of the things that a kid would see was, oh, okay, this is normal. They, they are, People have this planned out. People aren't just fla- uh, floundering around. They have a plan, and I feel safe in that plan. And that would be something that I think would have been – it certainly would have been better for me, uh, both as a kid and as an adult, if somebody had gone in and say, oh, yeah, no, there's a standard checklist for all this. This is something that's been figure- – that people have put in a lot of thought into.
0: Aria, we started out with um, a, a, an example of where you unfortunately felt really blown off by a particular rabbi. Since since you've, you've 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 started this work, you've written about it. Is there is there an example you had where where something went right for you in a Jewish context, or 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 you felt you felt held and supported? Just so we have some you know, some sense of what a more positive way would, would look like?
3: Um, I, I think I'm still figuring out that. I don't know that I've felt, I mean, I've, I've gone to synagogue and I've, and I felt the warm embrace of, of a congregation that knows that I'm divorced and is okay with that and, and is good to me in that. And that feels very comforting. And there's, you know, I feel like I'm still part of the congregation and that's, that's wonderful. But I think there still is a whole lot of confusion and there's still, and I, and it hasn't been figured out yet. So I don't know that, that I have a, a wholly positive story. I think maybe, uh, Ezra, do you? Um,
1: I mean, I'm an unusual case because I'm teaching about this stuff as well. Mm. So I'm like kind of refusing to be isolated about it. I'm kind of made it my crusade um, to, to, to help, people. so but I' I'm, I'm, I am collecting you know I am in the beginning of the process of, of trying to collect stories from people that's another thing that's helpful is hearing other people's stories um that's the that's what's powerful about group work is um, is is hearing that um, so I, I keep thinking about Tish above um, hmm. and feel so like your question Brian reminds me the afternoon of Tishabov above it goes from this really dark place of destruction and mourning and desolation And the afternoon um it's the only service in the afternoon where you're supposed to wear tallit talit and tefillin i you know the the, the the leather straps that you wrap around your arm it's the only service of the year you wear in the afternoon and uh the reason for it is that the the end of tishabav is like this birth of of of, of hope of like a, you know a messianic figure we'll call it um is born on tishabav so in the midst of despair i actually you know, Messianism is not is considered a kind of a fundamentalist aspect of religion, but I actually had a Messianic experience with divorce in my own life. Um, my parents, who had a very high conflict divorce my entire childhood and adulthood through college, through young adulthood, I actually moved to Israel partly to get away from them. <laughs> um, uh, I moved back. Like when my kid was born, it took about 36 years. For my parents to finally realize, oh, we can be together. We can actually spend time together. Um, we can we actually have something. In, we actually have stuff in common. And now my parents get together for birthdays and for Shabbat. Sometime we were together last week on Shabbat. Um, for me, that's like a messianic vision of what can happen. Like sometimes it takes a lot of years and many, but like it can happen that a relationship can get transformed. One that's like defined by high conflict can shift. And so I witnessed that in my life, it took a long time, but uh, I, 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 and I don't wanna be prescriptive and say that's gonna happen to you, but I also believe like transformation does happen and it happens more with intention and with tools and they didn't have those tools, it took a lot of time. But, um, but to me, like my parents' relationship now is a success story, even though it was a very long, it took it took decades. So it gives, it gives me it gives me some hope that I can
3: offer that to other people. And I just realized that the perfectly obvious answer to your question which I completely ignored is that everything within the context of my relationship with Ezra and the support that he's given and the con- and the ideas that he's generated and um what we've what I've learned is within a Jewish context. My mother met her, best friend, met her best friend in Jewish day school. Her best friend recommended that after she got divorced that she would, she should talk to another recent divorcee. That was Ezra's mother. Ezra's mother's a rabbi. They were put together because they were deeply involved in the Jewish community and they could relate to each other. This is not, these we're not random connections. And this is all, and our connect, our conversations then the support that he's that Ezra's given me and I hope that I've given him have all been within the context of a Jewish thought process on this on these issues, which has been an amazingly positive influence in my life. It's helped me get through some very, very tough times. So I would say that yes, the Jewish context of our conversations has helped. And the Jewish community has given me an avenue of amazing support so (laughs) i couldn't think of it but i think i think it's because like you know it's like the fish you know what do you mean there's water it's just that it's all around me and that was and that's part of it
0: wow um ezra can you tell us where people can find or learn more about revoice at this point
1: yeah right now i i just have a facebook page um which you can look you can search on Facebook for Revoice, um, but I am putting up a website this summer. That's my—I'm uh, in the middle of of launching that. So um, when it's up, I will give you that information.
0: And uh, if it's if it's up before we uh, before we go live with this episode, it will be in our show notes. Right. Um. Ariel, Ezra, thank you both so much for a, a, a wonderful conversation i really um appreciate uh um everything you brought brought to the table and 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 bringing this uh conversation to the to the forefront
1: thank you for having us on yeah thanks for giving us this
0: uh opportunity what did you think of today's episode i want to hear from you evolve is about curating meaningful conversations and you're very much a part of that Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at my real actual email address, bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N. And folks, you've you've actually been writing. I wanted to share a portion of what one new listener wrote because I was uh, was touched and and thought you might want to hear it. This is Lynn Schwartz from Temple Beth Israel in Eugene, Oregon. Lynn wrote, It was very rewarding to listen to Brian's conversation with Rabbi Kamisar about preparing for the high holidays and so much more. And, and she's referring to our most recent uh, conversation with Rabbi Nathan Kamisar. Um, thank you so much, Lynn. We're thrilled to have you join our community of listeners. Um By the way, Lynn also wrote, Incidentally, as a person with hearing loss, I often read transcripts when available as I'm listening to a podcast or other recordings. I appreciate that a transcript is available on your site, though as you likely know, it's sometimes found some but not all Hebrew words confounding. Thanks again, Lynn. We are committed to accessibility and that's why we publish a full transcript for every episode. If you're listening on your phone, there's a link in the episode description to the webpage. Or you could go to evolve.fireside.fm and find the episode. The transcripts are available under episode details. Now, we know they aren't perfect, so if you spot an issue or have a suggestion on how the transcript or any aspect of the show could be better, please let me know. Again, you can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with an all-new episode. Evolve! Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wachs. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism, I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time.